even though some of you, we just see your names, but we know you're there. And others of you, we see your faces. So on this beautiful spring evening, <laughs> the flowers are, are so, so beautiful. I'm imagining, Liz, that that's uh, still your doing. Yes, the purple flowers and the white flowers together are just absolutely beautiful. And of course, the uh, cranberry apple blossoms in the cold, cold wind, <laughs> such, such as our spring right now. And uh, anyhow, um, I want to teach tonight from a uh, one of my root teacher Catherine's favorite teachings. Um, many of you here knew Catherine and others of you didn't. Um, she was our root teacher and abbot here for, for many, many years. And she loved teaching from this particular work, which is not technically Buddhism or Zen. However, it is absolutely Zen. And so I wanted to do a Zen uh, take on this particular work. And it is a poem by Mary Oliver. Catherine used to bring Mary Oliver's poetry into the Zendo regularly and taught us um, from this woman's uh, beautiful teachings. And I uh, was having a practice discussion with someone not long ago, and I brought out this poem as an example of a point that I wanted to make. And after I read it, I went, now that is a Dharma teaching. So I thought I would base this tonight's talk on one of her most famous poems. And it might even be one you go, oh yeah, I've heard that, I know that poem. So if you think you know it, good for you. Um, I'm basically, if, if the speed of this poem is like a uh, hundred you know, revolutions per minute or something, I'm gonna take it down to about 10 revolutions per minute <laughs> and go really, really, really slow, which is also a way that I like to study Dharma is taking each word, each phrase, and really, really chewing on it, really taking it down. So I'm first going to read the poem, um, either to refresh your memory, or if you have never heard it, you get to hear it for the first time. And then I'm gonna take it phrase by phrase and uh, give you my uh, sense of it. And then we can also have some discussion about it together. So it is Mary Oliver's uh, very famous poem, Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high 
in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So you do not have to be good. Now, what is she talking about here? I mean, we vow to do all good, don't we? In the beginning of our renewal of our vows, every month we say, I vow to do all good. So is she telling us not to do all good? Is she telling us to be bad? I think not. I think she's speaking of a different kind of admonition. You do not have to be good. I think she is talking about the kind of uh, be good that we maybe have heard in the past, like a threat. Be good now. That's a different kind of good. And I think that's the kind of good that she's talking about. The be good now as if there was something fundamentally wrong with you that you need to correct by being good. As if there was some standard against which we were being judged and to which we must conform. So I think this is what she means when she's encouraging us to relax. You do not have to be good. Not in that way. Now, I think that um, I was just talking again with another person this morning about um, how some of us maybe are drawn to Zen uh, because we feel a kind of a safety and a belonging in the specificity of forms. I mean, you know, there's a lot of um, religions and practices that are much less formal and those of us that find ourselves returning here, there's a certain attraction that we have to that. And in fact, there's even kind of a way to do things. And sometimes we get caught up in wanting to be good Zen students and doing it right, you know. And um, maybe we feel, oh, I'm really good. I rang the bell really, really well tonight. I'm good. Oh, look how good I do my gosho. Look how my elbows stick up like a good Zen student. Of course, it's not just Zen. I think a lot of traditions have this, uh, you know, desire to try to conform to something and somehow to, to be good. Um, and um, so it would seem that there is a way to be good and a way to be bad, or at least to be good in, in this practice that we have. And yet, our great teacher, Dogen Zenji, in many different ways, but one of my favorites is when he tells us that arousing practice in the midst of delusion, um, we attain enlightenment before we realize it. So I think he's also speaking to this, you do not have to be good. Because right away, we might think, oh, delusion, bad. 
Zen. I want to be a good Zen student, so I have to get rid of my delusion. And, and there's probably even some traditions, some ways of thinking where delusion is considered bad and you do try to eradicate it. And we do vow to end it in our bodhisattva vows. So again, there's no absolute uh, either or here. And yet at the same time, he tells us that when we can arouse our practice right as our delusion is arising, that's where we find our enlightenment at the edge of our human, the realness of our human experience and, and um, our aspirations, that's where practice happens. So uh, perhaps there's more that, that, that meets the eye uh, if we think about a deeper way to approach this whole dimension of you know, thinking about whether we're good or bad. And I think that she is inviting us, you do not have to be good and she takes it a little bit deeper, just in case we didn't get the message. <laughs> she says, you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. Why would there ever be a reason to walk for a hundred miles in the desert repenting? Why would we ever feel like we have to do that? Not that repentance isn't a good thing. Again, we do repentance here in the Zendo. We say all my ancient twisted karma, you know, I vow that I do through my body, speech, and mind, I do things that are not skillful. And therefore I do want to confess and repent before the Buddha. I want to admit what I've done that was unskillful. And I want to recommit to fulfilling the Buddha way. So we do confession and repentance. But again, that's not the kind of repentance she's talking about here. She's talking about the kind where we would somehow think that we have to walk for a hundred miles on our knees in the desert, repenting. A far cry from the honest self-reflection and kind correction that we practice here in our confession and repentance. I think that this kind of walking on our knees for a hundred miles through the desert, I kind of shiver when I hear something like that. It feels like something I've been calling the ancestral pain body. These, these I would say more um, harsh, judgmental, toxic lines uh, that sometimes come through us where we just, feel like we're never good enough. And, and maybe if we just can walk a hundred miles in the desert, we'll somehow prove ourselves. I think, again, we have to be aware of a bit of a tendency with a rigorous practice to maybe uh, not be so kind with each other. It's even in our sacred teachings. It's edgy. Um, I want to. I want to read uh, an edgy haiku by the fifteenth-century uh, Zen master Ikkyu. Um, uh, there's a, one of our sacred stories about one of our ancestors, um, Huike, 
who was so much wanting to prove to his teacher, Bodhidharma, that he was a good Zen student. Please, please, I'm so good. I want to study with you. I want to study the Buddha way. And to show his sincerity, he cut off his arm. He waited in the snow outside the, the, the hut of his master, and he cut off his arm to show his dedication. And I would assert to you that that might be a bit like thinking you have to walk on your knees for 100 miles in the desert, repenting, EQ says, and he doesn't name Hueca by name, but we know this is who he's talking about, of course, because he's a, he's a very accomplished Zen practitioner. His poem, this is more, I think, that along the lines of what Mary's talking about, he says, don't wait for the man standing in the snow to cut off his arm, help him now. Don't wait for the man standing in the snow to cut off his arm. Help him now. But then what's the alternative if we're not um, following some rigid external morality structure? You know, if we don't have a God or a standard telling us how to be good and how to stay in line, um, wh what is our, um, what is the alternative? And kind Mary offers us an alternative. In her next sentence, she says, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Because of course, no matter how smart we think we are, or no matter how much we love to get caught up in the stories of the mind, the truth is we are animals, are we not? And if you sit long enough, if you do a, a sashin, you really do meet the fact that, oh, I live in an animal body, right? You can try to be spiritual and transcend, but you sit long enough and your animal, it's your animal body that you encounter. It's the animal body that we encounter. And rather than seeing this body as a hindrance, which was how the ascetic ancients thought that it was something somehow disgusting and something that we had to try to, you know, um, separate ourselves from um, as, as Shakyamuni Buddha taught us in his liberation. The body is actually um, the guide for liberation. You know, Shakyamuni Buddha, our founder of our way, the story goes, you know, he did all the ascetic practices for seven years. He really tried. He starved himself. You know, he didn't sleep. He did all that, those ways of trying to rid himself of the body. And finally, when he was almost dead from starvation, he just felt like, oh, there's got to be another way. And he accepted food from um, from the, the passing uh, woman and nourished his body and then went to sit under the Bodhi tree to have the awakenings that now today we call Buddhism. So um, our animal bodies know what they need. Hunger leads us to food, thirst leads us to water, fatigue leads us to rest. 
desire, the wish for others, the wish for connection with others leads us to interdependence. So please trust your animal body. Trust your instincts. Consider that our instincts are our body's wisdom trying to align us with what is wholesome. And here Mary offers a particular kind of instinct, which is uh, of course a very important aspect of our animal body. And that is our ability to love. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. A great human blessing of love. This impulse for interconnection at the root of the Brahma Viharas. Loving kindness, metta, compassion, equanimity, sympathetic joy, all coming from, from love. And then in the next line, Mary goes right into compassion practice. She says, tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. I, I feel like that is just the essence of an expression of, of compassion, you know, acknowledging um, the full range of our human experience. That there is that that there that we have this despair, and her joining compassion, compassione, suffering with. It's not oh you're over there with your despair. Let me come and help you, you poor pathetic creature. It's tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. I suffer with you in our human condition. Um, when I was, I went on a trip to Argentina in December, my brother invited me to go. It was an amazing experience. And part of it was doing these 10 hour night flights from Houston to Buenos Aires. And, uh, there was no way that I could sleep. I tried on the way down. It was hopeless. So on the way back, I realized I'm not going to sleep. I'm just going to watch movies. So I watched the entire movie of Dune <laughs> it was very good. And then there was a movie Inside Out, which I had seen before. And I watched it again and I really recommend it. I mean, it's an animated film of, that shows inside the brain of a, a young girl who's going through some, a difficult time in her life. And it's the parts of her brain kind of figuring out who's gonna be in charge. And the part of called sadness, the, the one called joy is always trying to like, you know, don't, don't mess things up, you know, and sadness is always kind of bumping into everything and being, oh, I'm sorry, you know, this really sad little part. And of course, finally, at the end, it's only by honoring sadness that the girl, you know, she has her liberation. And uh, but we, the end of the movie was happening right when we were landing in Houston and I was just sobbing, <laughs> you know, as the airplanes landing in Houston, I'm just crying at this little animated movie because it was so beautifully depicted. The absolutely essential role of sadness. It's what humanized this, this little girl who was, she was an adolescent and she was mad at her parents because they'd moved across the country and, you know, she was all, she was running away from home and, you know, 
And it was when the sadness was what broke th broke through. It cracked her heart open. So um, the great the the great uh, and important teaching of allowing, embracing all of our emotions, and then the beautiful practice of recognizing that we are not alone in our suffering. This is the great medicine. This is what all good chaplains know. You know, priests were called into moments of suffering and it's this feeling and you do it in your very own life with your people. You know, when you, when a, when you and in your own life, when you feel like, oh, I'm not alone, to not be alone in our suffering. Ugh, so beautiful. EQ has a little haiku about that too. Um, he says, something in us always wants to cry out someone we know. No, excuse me. I'll start again. Something in us always wants to cry out someone we love, knows, hears. I'll read that again. Something in us always wants to cry out someone we love knows, hears, tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, this is such a, such a great piece of fighting. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the deep trees and the mountains and the rivers. Right, meanwhile, the world goes on. Now she's after completely having compassion for the particular suffering, our particular suffering. She invites us to expand our consciousness now beyond our individual despair, our individual difficulties, our skin bag, as we call it in Zen. And she invites us to welcome the full range of the consciousness of all beings. The sun and the pebbles and the rain and the prairies and the trees and the mountains and the rivers. Where have I heard this before? Dogen. Because earth, grass, trees, tiles, walls, and pebbles, even pebbles, all engage in Buddha activity. Those who receive the benefit of wind and water caused by them are inconceivably helped by the Buddha's guidance, splendid and unthinkable. You know, this is form and emptiness. We, 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 in our particular human form, we suffer. We experience this despair. And at the same time, we, the world, at the same time, there, there's the sun and there's the wind and there's the pebbles, and there's this vast consciousness of, of life happening all around us. There was a quote in this book. Um, it's attributed to a, uh, an anonymous Chippewa writer. So, you know, I don't know where it came from other than that someone wrote this down. But I love this, I love this. It's. Uh, Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I am being carried by great winds across the sky. I've been saying that to myself. 
because it's true. Sometimes I go about pitying myself. <laughs> of course we do. And all the time I am being carried by great winds across the sky. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Have you ever heard the call of the wild geese? That haunting call, it's the, it's the voice of the wild, the absolute um, untamed nature, a voice of untamed nature that, that calls to us, that we hear the call of the larger world with all of its complex truth. There they are flying in the boundless realm, the clean blue air beyond good and bad beyond self and other. And at the same time, they're heading home. Form an emptiness once again. Emptiness, boundlessness of flying in the clear blue air and yet the form of, no, there is a particular place where I'm going to land. I went one time with my Dharma sister Patrice out to the Merced, um, wildlife refuge when the sandhill cranes were migrating. I highly recommend this as a practice. And we had this experience of going out um, at dusk and it's, you're out there in the, in the marsh, in the flat marshlands. And then all of a sudden from across the coast range, you start seeing these black dots and you start hearing this distant cry and they come closer and closer and then they start to merge into these like vast clouds of birds, cranes. And then they're all, you know, just hundreds of them and they fly right over you, right? Oh man, you know, whatever suffering would have been going on in my heart that moment is completely released. And there they are and then they all land, they find their home, they land in the marsh. And then you come back the next morning, it's all quiet. And then they start waking up and then they all depart and they go back out to where they go during the day. So, so this experience that we can have of, of the particularities and, and the boundlessness. And now she offers us the great compassion of Gaia, Mother Earth. She says, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. This, this great human capacity that we have to use our minds to imagine, to create. You know, Shakyamuni Buddha's imagination that all beings have the potential to awaken his imagination to sit out there night after night and engage with the great wide world and his own inner world and imagine these teachings and these stories that we're still being nourished by today. The ability to imagine that no matter how alone you feel, you are actually part of this web of life. I have a, a, a wonderful teacher right now who is encouraging me that to consider that you can say alone or you can say all one. And I've been really meditating with that when I have a feeling of loneliness. 
which is a particular suffering that I, I have. Seems surprising. I'm very social, but I can be very lonely. And she encourages me to also remember all one. So whoever you are, no matter how lonely the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Can you feel your place in the family of things? This, this is our liberation from suffering. When we actually can, can let ourselves imagine and feel that interconnection with all, with all beings. That is our liberation, our true home. And yes, there is harshness. It is harsh and it is exciting over and over these cycles, these changes. And then exactly as you are, you have a place in the family of things. And again, Dogen reinforces this in the Genjo Koan when he says, when you find your place where you are, practice unfolds, actualizing the fundamental point. You know, he doesn't say when you find your place in your new improved life that you're going to have after you walk 100 miles in the desert. He says, now, right now, this one, this very one, this place, when you find your place where you are, practice unfolds, actualizing the fundamental point. These wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So I, I want to close um, now so that we have a little time to um, maybe hear some of your words, some of your experiences, um, anything that uh, has been maybe stimulated by what I've been offering you. And of course, um, great gratitude to, well, to Mary Oliver, to EQ, these, these wonderful poets who find a way to touch our hearts. And Dogen, I consider Dogen to be a poet as well. Uh, so weaving him in too. So thank you very much for your um, attention, for your energetic uh, participation, Zoom people and your physical participation, Zendo people. So feel free to uh, stay muted, but you can join along at, at home. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are endless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless.